um, but just today we're going to be doing Africa. And because of that, it is my privilege this morning to interview Dan and Tambry Brosey. Um, Dan is the International Programs Director of World Relief, and um, they just got back in 2006 from six years in Burundi. And because when Ken told me that you guys were from Burundi, I asked, is that a city or a country, and on what continent? I have a map. Hopefully it'll work. Do we have a map? Does it work? There it is. Okay, so Africa. Um, and this is Burundi here, and we have a zoom of it. There it is, so that red area. And uh, Dan was also the regional director of the Great Lakes region, which is that area that you see zoomed right there. Is that helpful? I felt like it was helpful. Okay. So you guys just got back this last year, 2006, from six years in Burundi. Um, but that was not your, your first experience with Africa, at least not you. Can you tell us a little bit about your history with Africa, Dan? Sure. Um, well, I was uh, born in Africa, and I was born in Burundi. And um, I um, lived there for about 12 years before my parents came back to the States. And then we went there in 2001 as a family. Excellent. Anna, what was the process you guys went through to decide in 2001 to pick up and move you and your, your kids to East Africa? What was that process like? Is that something that you're just like, wake up one morning, you're like, I think we'll move to East Africa. What was that process like for you guys? Well, Dan was uh, born in Africa, and I wasn't. I was born in uh, uh, Gresham, Oregon. I was the youngest of five, the only girl. And I didn't know this, but if, until a few years ago, my mom told me that um, the first thing that she prayed when after I was born, since I was the last born, the only girl, that um, God wouldn't take me to Africa. And so I don't know if that rubbed off on me, but um, my worldview was very small. Um, all I knew outside the 10-mile radius of where I lived was uh, a yearly trip to Canada. So... Um, I actually did not have a desire whatsoever <laughs> to go to Africa. I didn't have a passion or a heart, basically because I knew nothing about it. Um, but knowing, obviously, marrying Dan and his uh, experience there, his history there, I was curious about it. And so in 1992, we decided it was a perfect opportunity uh, for our family. I was six months pregnant with our third child. We had a, a six-year-old and a three-year-old. And of all times, we decided to go and visit. Um, his parents were over there on a short-term mission, and so we went over there for about a month. And um, I secretly hoped that this would get it out of his system and he wouldn't think about it anymore. And, and, it, and it would give me an opportunity to see what, you know, all the hype was about from, you know, hearing his family talk about it. And, and I did enjoy it. It was a great trip, but I was really glad to get home put that behind me and get on with life. And um, for Dan, it just fueled the fire. So you can put all those um, pieces together and see that it, it uh, created some conflict in our home. Um, so for, through the next probably nine years, uh, we went through these ups and downs of um, talking about going and well, he talking about going and me not talking about it at all, nor praying about it because, of course, you know, when there's something you don't want to do, you don't pray about it because the Lord might tell you to do it. And so I didn't pray about it. And uh, finally, we really came to a crisis, um, a crossroads, and about the middle of this time, and where Dan was going up and down and, and 
figuring out, you know, his reasons for wanting to go and my reasons for not wanting to go and just confronting the fear that I had, the fear of the unknown. And um, we both gave those fears to the Lord and, um, and submitted our, our wills to him. And um, God, over the next few years, changed that fear um, into a passion for me and for both of us to go. And so in, in 2001, the opportunity came up for us to move to Rwanda. And so we took our 15-year-old, our 12-year-old, and our 8-year-old. And I'll just add on to that. As, as Tambri said, I, I had a passion to go back to Africa. As I said, I lived there for the first part of my life and, and loved it. It was my home. And when we came back to the States, I went into engineering, chemical engineering, and and then into business, and I just didn't know how I could possibly fit back into Africa because I knew that there were past missionary pastors, teachers, and um, and doctors. My father was a doctor there. Uh, so there was this, that struggle going on not only in our marriage but also in my heart. Was my reason uh, godly, or was it just me wanting to go back to my, my home? And how could God use me? Because I didn't have those skills and trainings that I saw a lot of traditional missionaries had. Um, sorry, I got distracted by the painting. Um, <laughs> so I guess I, I think it's interesting to me, at least, that I, I often have this perception that missionaries are people who just have always had a drive to be there. And so I really love that your story is an obvious calling of God of changing your heart. And I just think that's so cool. Um, so, Dan, you work for World Relief, and you worked for World Relief in Africa um, as country director of Burundi and as regional director of the Great Lakes region. What does that mean? What were you actually doing over there? What did your work look like? Yeah, that's, that's really a, an, a difficult question to answer well, but there are very visible things that we were doing. Burundi uh, just came out of a 12-year war, and it's, it's, it's very lengthy and, and complex. I don't have time to go into it, but in the 2003-2004, we started work there really in relief and rehabilitation, helping refugees who were returning to build homes, um, helping them restart their, their livelihoods with animal projects, etc. But really more what we do is about uh, development and changing, trying to help them change their mindset and their view on things so that they can come out of poverty, come out of rampant illnesses. And that, so that largely involves education, uh, we, we had microfinance activities where we would give loans, and we created a, basically a Christian bank in Burundi and in Rwanda that serves thousands and thousands of largely widows who can start and run their own businesses. So a lot of what we did isn't necessarily visible because it's, it's about helping people really in their own initiative. We would work in projects where we would educate families about how to prevent illnesses so children didn't die and mothers didn't die. Uh, so it's, it's really about changing... Uh, worldview and values, hopefully to a biblical worldview, and working largely with the church in those countries. And how has your role changed now that you're back in the States? What are you doing now? Sure. Well, it was really a tough decision to come back. We, we came back this last August, and largely because our two older boys are in college, and we wanted to be closer to them. So I was fortunate enough to be able to stay with World Relief and work here out of Bend as international director. So I'm overseeing our regions in Southern Africa, Central Africa, uh, and Asia. And so I'm basically on Skype phone, Internet phone with, with those folks around the world 24 hours a day whenever they're on the clock and, and helping them in, in planning and implementing their activities. And then also our headquarters is in Baltimore, so I, I interact a lot with our folks in Baltimore. 
Tambri, what does your ministry look like for the last six, seven years in Burundi, and, and what are you doing now to continue that, to continue your international ministries? Well, I didn't have a ministry plan when I went. I, um, I was in survival mode. Um, and <laughs> just really spent the three year, first three years there learning. And um, it was, it was uh, just getting our children, you know, settled and, and figuring out uh, education uh, um, questions for them and kind of struggling through a, a bit with our seventh grader. And then uh, um, homeschooling a bit off and on and being involved in women's Bible study learning as much about World Relief and being involved with the, um, the staff there when I could. And we also had many people in our home in Rwanda. Um, as country director, we invited visitors to come stay with us, and which we loved. We are both very, uh, we love to be hospitable, and, and so we had many guests. Um, and then after about a year, we were there, after we got there about a year later, I started working with a, a women's sewing group called the Mani Yaju, and it's a project based out of Nairobi, Kenya. And Amani Yaju is um, Swahili for a higher peace, and it's a, it's a project to help women to learn how to sew and turn those, that skill into marketing skills and to sell their, their products to earn money for their families, um, very, the very poorest women. Um, and that was one one arm of it, and the other is to to reconcile um, tribal differences and difficulties between them. Uh, many are coming coming from war, being in war against each other, and to build those relationships, build a bridge between the the, the tribes in working together as as Christian women. Um, so I worked with them for a couple of years in Rwanda, and then we moved to Burundi. Continued uh, hosting many many people in our home, being involved in. Uh, a small orphanage down the street from us and um, leading a women's Bible study, but continuing working with the Amaniyaju Amahodo Eva Mujuru, which is Kirundi for a higher piece in Burundi, and a very small group of five women uh, there who have just become like sisters to me, and I still try to help volunteer from here and help to market their products. And they sell beautiful handmade um, bags and um, table linens and purses and toys to expatriate community. That would be the white people who can afford them. Um, and what it does is it provides provides the money for them to support their families. And Dan mentioned that um, in the microfinance, there are, most of the clients are widows, and that's because in Africa the women are the backbone, really the backbone of the country, and most of the time, especially the, the poor women, and they they work hard to um, provide for school fees for their family and for food. And so it's just a, a beautiful um, project in helping these women do that. And to we have amazing, amazing stories of changed lives and changed communities because of this project. That's awesome. That's very cool. Um, so I'm going to switch topics a little bit if I can. Um, as people who have extensive knowledge and experience with Africa, I wanted to pick your brains a little bit about some preconceptions and maybe misconceptions we have about the continent of Africa. Um, I think a lot of us don't know anything about it, just honestly. Um, so I think one of the biggest misconceptions that uh, Westerners often have without maybe even knowing it is this idea 
this idea that uh, Africans need us to come over and like teach them how to fix their country, that they don't know how to do it and they're ignorant and they, they aren't educated and, and things like that. Um, what has your experience been with that and what would you say to, to us that maybe don't even know that we hold that, that preconception? Yeah, you know, when, when Ken and Courtney asked me to do this, I thought, why would they want me to talk about Africa? I'm, I'm so ignorant about Africa. And then I realized, well, you know, being born there and living there a third of my life, I, I might know something. But the longer I've been there, the more I realize I don't know. And, and it's so complex. And the more I realize I have a lot to learn from my African brothers and sisters. And just on, on the subject of Bible knowledge, any of you guys heard of a sword drill? You know, that's where you go to your Bible and find a verse or someone says, where is this verse, they, they, they recite the verse and you've got to find it. I, I would be conquered by, by the majority of African Christians on a sword drill. They have such extensive knowledge of the Bible, it puts me to shame. And that's just the, the tip of the iceberg. Their thirst for education is, is extreme compared to children and, and, and Americans. So they are, they are literally, those who have access to education are, are brilliant. Some of the most brilliant people I know, theologians, are in Africa. And then combine that thirst for knowledge, thirst for the Bible, desire to work and to succeed. Um, I, I, I think the future of Africa is very bright. There are insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable problems right now. And Africans, and I don't want to generalize and say all Africans are the same because they're all very different, but, but Africans can come up with many of the solutions. And that's really the new model that we have in missions, in development, in relief, is that jointly we come around the table and we say, we have this experience in America, we have this knowledge, we have this technology, what do you have? And that's not only happening in, in solving problems, but it's also happening in, in Christian circles, on, in theology and, and in biblical uh, learning. Theology of pain and suffering. I mean, we Americans don't have much to t say about that, but Africans speak volumes about pain and suffering. and I've learned so much just from them on that subject. Oh, I think one of the other preconceptions that people have is that um, Africa is like the same from like South Africa up to Morocco. And they tend to say, oh, I'm going to Africa or I went to Africa instead of I went to Chad or I went to, um, what would you say to, to generalizations like that or, or conceptions that all of Africa is the same? Sure, sure. Well, of course, it's the parallel is saying all of white, the, the, the white nations in the world are, are the same. So we are the same as Italy and Germany. And, in fact, even in one country, you find tribes that are, that are more different than Germans and Italians. You find tribes that speak languages in the same country that come from Nilotic or, or Bantu streams, which are very different in their, in their grammar and their, their structure of the language. Some are, are farmers, others are, are cattle herders. Some are nomadic, others are, are, are not nomadic. Um, and just the, some are patrilineal, others are matrilineal. So the property would be inherited through the, the, the wife and the mother's line. And if a, if a husband dies, the children would go back to the, to the mother's side, whereas in most African societies, other African societies, the, the children go to the father's side. And so you find extreme differences just between tribes. And we're even seeing that right now in Kenya. As most of you know, the conflict in Kenya after the elections there, uh, the existing president, Kibaki, is a Kikuyu tribe. The challenger is Luo tribe. And those two tribes have extreme differences. And when you look at the, the colonial history and how the Kikuyu come from the central section of Kenya where the colonialists really wanted to take that land, they took it, but they also educated the Kikuyu. And so if the Kikuyu, as they spread out throughout the country, they took other people's land because they, are, they like land. 
And they also learned from the, from the colonialists and the missionaries. They were educated. And so they have really an advantage now in the country over the other tribes. And that's why they've really dominated in the politics in that country. So to say that, well, it's, the, the elections were rigged and we need to do a re-election, well, there is some truth in that. But we can't really understand how they were rigged, why they were rigged, and the complexities behind that without going back and actually understanding the differences just not only between the tribes but in the history and how that's affected them. So interesting and complex. Jeez. Um, so I think one of the biggest preconceptions that we have of Africa, the picture that comes to mind is the poverty of people. We get these pictures of starving children and things like that. I just read last week that um, over $600 billion have been given to Africa in aid in the last 40 or 50 years. Um, has that made a marked difference? Um, if not, why is that? Why has it been ineffective? Or and, uh, Courtney's getting to some really simple questions to answer here, so, so I'll just answer with a yes or no. Um, again, to parallel here, it's like, it's like saying, has all the money we've put into racial reconciliation in the U.S. or immigration issues, has that resolved the problem? We know in our current political season that there are complex issues here, and a lot has been invested into resolving them, and the answer is not easy. I, I, there are a couple books that I've, I've looked at and read recently on these issues. One is, is by Jeffrey Sachs. He's a, he's a brilliant guy, and he argues that we need to increase the amount of aid dramatically, tenfold, and we need to give the UN more prominence in, in uh, coordinating and running how this aid is applied. On the other spectrum, there's a guy named Willie Meesterly who wrote a book called, called White Man's Burden. And he, he says, no, that's all wrong. Uh, we need to look at it as, as a matter of market issues. There are searchers and there are planners, and the, the UN, they're planners. They come in from the outside and they say, here's the plan for you guys, here's how to solve your problems, and here's the money to do it. But then there are searchers, and they, it's more grassroots. We, we in Africa, we, we know we have a problem, and we're searching for the solution as opposed to the outside planning the solution for us. And Willie Meesterly, in his book, he, he talks about, um, um, what's the Potter, what's that Potter book? Harry Potter. Sorry, I've been out of the States for a while. But uh, so, so in uh, 2005 um, or 2006, there were like 8 million Harry Potter books sold in one day. And it wasn't someone else coming from the outside and saying, you will sell 8 million Harry Potter books in one day. It was the market saying, we want Harry Potter books. And, you know, just the whole world kind of coordinated itself to sell those Harry Potter books. Well, we need millions and billions of mosquito nets in Africa. And the outside is saying, you need millions and billions of mosquito nets, and, and here they are, but they're just not grabbing them, and it's just not happening. And, and what's the difference between Harry Potter books and mosquito nets? We need to create mechanisms whereby the, the, those in need of those mosquito nets are searching for them. And I'm not saying the answer is simple, how to create a searching mind in the Africans, but a lot of it revolves around discussing, sitting around the table and saying, why are your kids sick so much? Let's look at the patterns for those who are sick and those who aren't sick. Why are those who aren't sick not sick? What are they doing? And through that community interaction, you can start creating a mentality that, well, I see how they're using mosquito nets, and you create a searching mode. Let's find mosquito nets, and let's create an economic engine that allows us to get mosquito nets where we're not relying on someone outside to just drop in our lap, and, and we might put it up. We might uh, sell it so we can feed our children. So you're saying the 
$600 billion has not been completely squandered, but the, the things that are coming in, there isn't necessarily an understanding of the need of them. Right. Yeah, I didn't really answer your question. It's, I think the $600 billion has come from a planning mentality. We, as the outsiders, have planned the solution to your problems. And ultimately, if someone from Europe planned the solution to our immigration problems, would we listen to them? I mean, we, we probably would rather come up to the, on, to the solution ourselves, and it's going to take many years to come up with that solution. So um, if, if the planning direction or the planning strategy is not, is not the way to go, how, how, how is World Relief creating the, the understanding of the need, or, or how, how do you really do that effectively is basically what I'm asking. Yeah. How do you be effective if providing what they need is not going to be effective? Yeah, well... You know, I, I, I've thought about um, culture, and as World Relief, are we coming with our culture? And, and, you know, that's always been a criticism of missions, is that you're coming from the outside, and maybe you're, you're bringing the Word of God, but you're also bringing a Western understanding of the Word of God. And uh, in Romans 12, we, we, we learn that, that God has a culture that is beyond our own culture. We're not to be conformed to the world's culture, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And as we come to Africa, we need to come humbly as servants, as learners, and to say we are here and sitting around the table with other Christians in churches, we're here to learn God's culture. And how, how does God's culture impact you and how does it impact us? Because I am firmly of the opinion that the U.S. has as much to learn from Africa as they have to learn from us. Our culture is, as it, is in as great a need as their culture is in. So it's when you come with that, that humble spirit and you sit around the table and that's what we try to do as World Relief, and many other organizations try and do that, then we can together learn how God wants to transform us, our minds and our actions. And so on the issue of HIV-AIDS, uh, we don't get involved, although it's, it's important, we, we don't get involved in bringing medicine and building health centers. Many are doing that. But our approach has been rather to, to through the mechanism of the church, not the mechanism, through the, the body of the church, to be talking about what is God's culture and how does it relate to the issue of HIV-AIDS. Our actions, our attitudes, our practices are very important on the issue of HIV-AIDS. And then our, our desire to care for those around us who are sick is important. And the, the problem cannot be solved by more medicine and more health centers. It has to be solved through God's people reaching out all around them, even as we need to reach out all around us in our own culture. Excellent. Um, I know that short-term missions trips are a hot topic amongst missions organizations and missionaries. Um, a lot of big churches and small churches, too, I guess, have this mission strategy of just flooding the world with short-term teams that oftentimes look more like world tourism than a missions trip, just quite honestly. What have your guys' experiences been with hosting short-term missions? Um, can they be effective? And if they can be, what makes a short-term trip a success rather than a failure? Sorry, that's a loaded question. Well, yeah, this is another very simple question to answer. Um, <laughs> but I think we, historically we look at, at times in which the whole world has changed. And I think in my parents' and grandparents' uh, generations, you know, they could get across the world with the Word of God. And that was dramatic, and the, the world was flattening then. But we've seen a step change, a dramatic flattening of the world in the last decade, whether it be through communication or just ability to know and ability to go. And it's happening from both sides of the world. We're reaching towards each other. And it's going to happen. We cannot stop it. And so uh, Gandhi said, um, 
something like, there I see all my people running that direction. I need to run in front of them so I can lead them. And that's basically what we, as, as those who know something about Africa and Africans, need to think about this, this short-term missions movement because it's happening. It's a river that's flowing. And we need to, to run out and say, hey, guys, these are my experiences I want, I want to help. And so I've seen, we've, we've received many short-term missions teams. And, and those that come with people who are more educated and knowledgeable and appreciative of the complexities and servant-minded and humble and learners, they're the best people to send. And those who come with skills to teach, skills, and they, they come to do something that the, the nationals cannot do. If you come to do something the nationals can do, really you're taking their place. And they question, well, why are these resources going into this? You know, we, we in the West and the, the global North often say to missions and development agencies and, and churches in Africa, we want to measure what you're doing. You know, metrics is a big buzzword these days. Let's measure it to see if you're accomplishing what you say you're doing. Well, we should also do that to ourselves. We're sending these teams. What is our objective? How are we measuring if it's successful? And how do we hold ourselves accountable? There's a, a, a recent effort, um, you might have seen it, called the, the Short-Term Missions uh, Standards of Excellence. It's, there's a website called STM Missions or something. And they have a number of criteria for standards of excellence and you can get qualified, and your church can have this little seal, I guess. And so you are, you are excellent in your use of short-term missions, and I think we need to do that. We need to be challenging ourselves to do that well. And I think two of, I won't go through all the things they talk about, but, but two are preparation and follow-up. So the follow-up, I think, is, is very critical in that we, we debrief, we educate the church from those who are coming back, and then we, we create a plan on how to use that knowledge that they bring back. I would agree with Dan on the education, especially um, just from our experience of having short-term missions teams and hosting them and um, organizing. It's a lot of work for the people in the field. It really is. Um, and sometimes we wondered if it was worth it. But, of course, it always was. But um, we were very impressed with the, for most of the teams that, that we received, their, their preparation was, was um, very extensive before, and they were trained very well. And just um, for people to be prepared to accept and understand the culture in which they're going and being willing to maybe, um, you know, have to change their appearance a little bit to fit into their culture, to, the, to their host, host culture is really important. And um, I, we see that. Are the, the teams that were coming out were so mature and so so uh, prepared for that. So definitely, preparation and education is is huge. I'll, I'll add one more thing. Um, Ken, a, a few months ago, had a message, and there were three principles. This was on on um, justice and, and those issues, and, and you guys might remember that. The first one was clean the toilets or clean the outhouse. And if you want to reach out across the world, make sure you're reaching out around where you are right now. And I would say those who we send on short-term missions need to have demonstrated that they know how to clean the outhouse before we send them to, to clean something more important than the outhouse. Another aspect to that was, was dig and deep and understand. You can't change the world until you try to understand the world. And he gave an illustration from the Band of Brothers and about uh, in, in Holland, some prostitutes who were prostituting themselves with the Nazis, I think, and and how Ken was indignant. How can those guys do that? How can those, those women do that? And his father, who's, who's from Holland, reminded him that, that people will almost do anything to feed their children. 
And I have, uh, that just rung a strong bell in my head because I've seen the exact same thing in Africa. Women who prostitute themselves to, to feed their children. I, I can't really judge them. But I need to come in and help them feed their children before I judge them as prostitutes. And so I've seen churches do some amazing things in Africa to reach out to that community of women to help them in their livelihood, to, to earn money, so that they can come out of what they know is a sin. Um, and the third message that, the third point Ken gave was that we can't do it alone. Not only do we need others, we need the, the global body of Christ, but we need God. And I just really appreciate Ken and, and, and Courtney and, and this church in its desire to learn. As I've come back from Africa, I opened up boxes, and, and I came across these three little books. And I, my grandparents, who are missionaries in China, or my parents must have given these to me, because they, they go way back. One is called Ethiopia in the Light of Prophecy. It was written in 1935. And... Um, it talks about Mussolini invading Ethiopia and what's the church's response to that and how does that fit into prophecy. And I was looking through this, I was thinking, man, that's just like the world today. We've got all these things going on. And, and what did they do then and what can I learn from them about their successes and their failures? Another book is called Mending Broken Things. It's written in 60 and 61. It's about Rwanda. I mean, people in 94 are saying, man, Rwanda's broken. Well, they were back there in 61 saying Rwanda's broken. How are we going to mend it? But a lot of people who go to Rwanda or Africa don't realize sometimes the history, and not only the history of the Africans, but the history of missions and how have they failed, how have they succeeded. Uh, another one is called Africa at 6 a.m. And um, I'm, I'm sorry I'm answering so long here, but, but this one was written in 1968, and it's talking about how we, the Africans in general have, have been educated, they've been mobilized by missionaries. It's time to turn it over to them. This is a new dawn for Africa. A lot of us are even saying the same thing t today, that it's a new dawn for Africa. As I was looking through this, I'm just going to read a, a short blurb here because it was, it was so, it reminded me of today. And you know what was going on in 68. It was, it was Vietnam. He says, Vietnam has shown the world that military power, including over 500,000 well-equipped American soldiers, are absolutely helpless to prevent terrorist attacks. Sounds like today. They don't have the power to protect even the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. Here is the most powerful nation on earth, the U.S., powerless to achieve even limited objectives. Sounds like Iraq, doesn't it? It seems to me that the Protestant church in the U.S. is in almost the same position. She has billions and billions of dollars. She has sent tens of thousands of missionaries overseas. In many countries, they have been expelled and sent home, broken in health and spirit. After 150 years of modern missions and the expenditure of hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, the 2,000-year-old Bible command to preach the gospel to every creature has not been achieved, and what are we going to do? It just it sounds like today. The more we do, the more we repeat what others have done. So what would you say, just a couple of closing questions, what would you say to Antioch? We are taking a short-term team next, next month. Next month, right? It's still January. Um, and we're starting a relationship with an organization, a grassroots organization in Uganda. What would you tell us we need to know to make that a success? Well, I've already said a few things, you know, talking about cleaning the outhouse and learning, and, and, but especially going with a humble heart, and I know, that, I know that is the heart that is going out, a learning heart, and I know that, uh, that Ken and, and the group that are going over are really going to continue learning and to know how to engage, and that means to, to learn the areas that they need us and to have a deep enough relationship that they will be honest with you because I've encountered many, many Africans who they respect us so much 
coming so far that they don't want to disappoint, disappoint us with the truth. And sometimes we need to be disappointed with the truth. We need them to be honest with us and say, guys, you're really bad at doing this, but you're really good at doing this. And if we can have more of this, then that's great. So obviously relationship has to be, be built so there can be honesty, but it takes time. Um, send teams and people that have skills that they need. We've received teams in, in Rwanda and Brunei that have IT skills. That's incredibly needed to train IT skills. Financial skills, to train financial skills. Computer skills, oh, I said that. English as a second language. English is taking over. But it's not always useful to go and build houses. I mean, we just know they can do it better than we can. Um, so I would just emphasize that. But, but the more that we can also learn from those who have come back and participate with them in, in their knowledge base, the more we can do better, I think. Um, just to close this up here, there's a lot of people sitting in these seats that have never been to Africa, maybe never will be to Africa. Um, how can they be involved in, in trying to influence the long-term fate of Africa from Bend, Oregon? Like, what are practical ways that, that us normal people can, can do something about these issues? Is there a way? Yeah. <laughs> well, obviously learning, and, and again, many of the things I've said, but advocacy Speaking up for Africa is very important. Um, connecting with Africans, and I know that, that Ken and, and the team here are really connecting in serious ways with, with some people there. Bring them here and learn from them. I, I've been talking to Ken about, wouldn't it be great if we could have a, a theologian from Africa come and spend some months here teaching us? Teaching us, because they have a lot to teach us. And, and from that we learn, but then we also send them back, and they're part of us, we're part of them. So the more that we can build that connection. Um, other practical ways is, is to pray and, and um, learn more about the church there and their needs, their struggles. Lift that before the Lord. Um, Tamber, do you have any other ideas? Well, I'm going to take this opportunity to plug something. Excellent. <laughs> As a very practical way to help. Um, well, I have friends ask me a lot, you know, so... You know, Tambra, I know there's a lot of needs out there, and you see them all the time. And and what can I do to help? You know, I'm only one person; I don't have very much money. But how how can I help? And it just seems like such a a, a big question. And yet, um, I as far as um, a practical way for you to help on on. Uh, like I said earlier, I'm working with a, a Mani Yaju, continuing to work here from, from the U.S. And um, the, the project in Burundi is, is very young, and they're just getting started. And the only way they've been selling their products is through uh, teams, church teams that have been coming. That When I was there, I would take the church teams out you know, in, into the country to, to their little home where they were huddled inside their house sewing, and, and that's the only way they were selling their products. Um, what would help them tremendously if they could rent a little uh, space in the capital city of Bujumbura, um, a little storefront space, and that would be about $150 a month, uh, $1,800 a year. And so I have taken it upon myself to, to um, let those who are interested in wanting to help to, to allow them to in this way. And so I'm on February 10th, I... Um, 
Well, I've ordered several boxes of their beautiful products that they've made coming from Rwanda, Nairobi, and Burundi. And I'm going to sell them and uh, talk about the women of Amani Yaju and share some stories and share some pictures and um, share the lives of these, these women in Africa with the women here. And hopefully we can, we can connect um, as women a little bit. Men are welcome too. But... Um, so these products will be available, and at the same time, what I would like to do is, if anybody is interested in supporting this um, goal of mine, to raise the rent for these women for one year, and that's only $1,800, but um, I would like to, like to be able to send them a check in a few weeks and say, uh, ladies, go find a place, and, um, you know, this, th- it would, help their business incredibly so that's that's one way and so i just want to to plug that february 10th at the um bear wallows uh pavilion in shevlin shevlin commons and if anybody has any more questions ask me afterwards thanks so there are there are a lot of opportunities um obviously you don't have to give to them all you don't have to give to any of them if you don't have the resources um money isn't the only way to give um there's prayer there is um organizations that you can get involved in if you have any questions about um the uganda project or any other um missions or projects that antioch is working on please ask myself or ken or kim hunt and we'd be happy to answer those questions for you thank you very much you guys um i appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us Kind of a blessing to have Dan and Tambry in the church. And at a lunch a couple of weeks ago, they were saying they miss how people drop by their house like they do in Africa. So I thought maybe it'd be fun for us to kind of take that on as a you know, ministry to just fill your house with people a lot, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but it is kind of a blessing having them here. And, and I kind of just think it's funny that um, in little old Bend, a little old church startup would have people that know what they're actually doing. And I started two months ago kind of with, with uh, Africa um, at Stupid. And uh, now, two months later, um, I'm, a, I'm a little bit further than Stupid is where I'm at. So I don't know what that means. I'm just not as stupid as I was two months ago. Um, and so I'm kind of happy for that. Why are, we, why are we doing what we're doing in Africa? And I think it, just taking it back to Scripture, because everything we do as a faith community... Um, is nothing new. You know, it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. And so what has been before will be again, and the needs that have been before will be again, and the same good people with the same good motives that have been before will be again. And so when we kind of come to it, I'm going to pretend like I'm drawing. I don't want to waste a piece of paper. But there's a little guy named Paul, and uh, legend has it that he was little and bald. And so I've got a lot of hope. Um, and Paul went up to uh, a little city called Antioch, and that's where he kind of got birthed as the first real missionary. And so in little old Antioch, Paul was there, and the leaders of that church went to prayer one night, and the next morning they woke up and said, you know what, we're going to send Paul and Barnabas off to missions, because that's what God's saying to us. And, and I've always been challenged by that, because basically you've got a church that overnight is going to take its senior pastor and, its, and their senior associate pastor and then, and then send them away. And I've always thought, what church in America would do that? I mean, it would at least take like three months to figure out how do we like get them off the health insurance policy and all this other stuff. But 
I mean, it's amazing. It's so the mantra, you know, that I've attached to the name of Antioch is simply this, that we would take the best of what God gives us and give it away. That we take the best of what God gives us and we give it away. So less than a year ago, we had a church planter from Redmond come and speak. And, and I tried to encourage anyone, hey, if God is, is stirring in your heart to be a part of a new work, go with that. Um, and that'd be great. We'd love to celebrate sending you. And yeah, we're a small church but who cares? And it's amazing. They launched at the end of fall, and they've got some 20-something people that have come through Antioch, either people that were here that Sunday or connections that have been made um, as people in our church have heard of others in Redmond looking for a church. And so I've kind of come to the conclusion that that's what it's all about for me, that I can work really hard to get 20 more people into Antioch sitting here on a Sunday morning. And the very next week, if, if I have a bad hair day or whatever, those people can leave. And so I can put tons of energy and emotion into filling 20 seats. And a week later, that can be gone. Or a year later, that can be gone. But if we send 20 people, nobody can take that from me. The rest of my life, nobody can take that from me. We gave. We held things with an open hand. We loved, we served, we, we let go, we didn't cling. And, and so to me, that's what's exciting is that the church at Antioch has a model for us and it's take the best of what God gives us and be willing to give it away. And so at Antioch, we're going to always be willing to sell money and, or sell money, sell art and give the money to missions projects and, and support things that people kind of come up with. And the idea would be to do it enough to where it causes the elders to sweat about how are we going to pay for this church. Um, if we don't sweat that way, then we're probably not trying hard enough to give stuff away. And so that's where we get the model. That's the idea that God said, take, take it beyond the little comfort zone. Go and give and be sacrificial with it. And so we look at the needs in Africa and we've kind of just said, we're going to adopt that. Now, if you remember the strategy, it's uh, Paul would go to a place and he would live there. He wouldn't come in, preach a message, have a couple people raise their hands and then just blitz. He would go and he would build relationships. He would, he would develop relationships, mentor and disciple and work with them. And he would leave behind a church. And so what we kind of always committed was, the, the, we committed to the idea that we're not going to spread ourselves thin, and I see it this way, we want to hit one nail 12 times instead of 12 nails one time. Does that make sense? I mean, that's, my, that's the logic that we've got going, is to get into an area and to invest ourselves to the degree that we actually are able to make a difference. And so in Uganda, and I don't know if you're going to be able to see this or not, but it's kind of an interesting just shape, and you've got Lake Victoria here, which is... Other than Lake Superior, I think it's the second biggest lake in the world. And um, on this border, you've got Kenya, and below it, you've got Rwanda, and you've got Congo over here. The capital city in Uganda is Kampala, and an hour south of that is Entebbe, where you fly into. Um, And basically what we've done is the Mount Elgon Mountains are over here. And we have partnered with a region here that's, that's really fascinating just in its history. Up in the mountains, you've got a town called Kapchora, and then if you go five and a half hours, four by four in it, you get to a little area called Bukwa. It's part of a district like that called Bukwa. And this is all plains up in here. Now, if you go back, this is different tribes. Here's a tribe here. And then the Karamojong live in this area up here called the Karamoja region. And they've never really integrated into 
kind of the, the more modern state of Uganda. Okay, they're cattle rustlers. They war with other tribes. And what happened was when Idi Amin was in power and then he t- got toppled in 79, there was a garrison up here, like an army kind of barracks area, whatever. And they came in from, um, from down below and we're going to throw uh, Idi Amin out of power. And what happens is when someone's, when the, the person you're following, when you're an army and someone's, when you're a soldier in someone's army and they're about to get overthrown, you don't want to be connected with that. Because then they'll just wipe you out and you're done and then you're not a headache anymore. Does that make sense? So what happened is all these soldiers just kind of dropped everything, put on the civilian clothes and just melded in and kind of walked out and went out. And the Karamajong went in and they took all the AK-47s and all the ammunition. And so they'd been warring back and forth, you know, cattle rustling, stuff like that in this region. And this was the economic center for all of this area of Uganda with the cattle and all this other stuff. And they'd just kind of been warring back and forth and stealing things and all that. And all of a sudden you get AK-47s and they just went into that valley and just obliterated it. And everybody fled to Kenya, fled um, westward, and this area here became kind of just a waste it used to be the most economically vital area of this whole region of uganda and it just was gone you know because they came in with kind of ak-47s and it's unbelievable the hostility there's a lady here named beatrice and we're going to be doing on this trip in february a human rights video project for in the area of female circumcision which is just this horrible thing that goes on in tribal areas and the the nationals the ugandans and in other countries too are really working to try and deal with this and it's a huge issue well beatrice's husband was working with world vision and just two years ago went up here to try and reconcile tribes and was stabbed in the back shot in the head and they took pictures of him and sent it to her and so Beatrice is a, is a widow from that. So it's a horrible thing going on. So when I was in Uganda in Captura in, in December, I was sitting there with this guy named Francis, who in the last couple months has planted a church up here. And it was an interesting thing. So here's my thought process while I was sitting there. I was like, you know, how would you ever meet a martyr? You know, because once they become a martyr, you can't really meet them, you know? I mean, it's, I, I'm, I really have a, a good education past the second grade. Um, you can't meet a martyr once they've been martyred. So if you're going to meet a martyr, when do you meet them? You meet them before they're killed. And so I was sitting there with Francis looking across the table, and I was just like, and he's got his wife and his little kids, and I was just like, this guy, is, he's dead. He's, he's going to die. And, and I've already met a martyr, and I'm thinking, this is just weird. And that kind of pastor, like, challenges my heart. Like, where am I at with the gospel? You know, really... Where, I, mean, if you, I mean, where are you at with God to be able to go in and say, you know what, it might mean sure death, but that's okay. Um, I'll go. And so there's like bridges being built again in this area, and there's some stability that's come here. And so there's church planting going on, and there's these IDP camps, which stands for internally displaced people, refugee camps, that are right here in this valley down below Capchora. And we're going to be doing some things with those but mainly what we're going to be doing is going over to here, this little village, Bukwa, in this Bukwa region. And Bukwa has been left to itself for the last 25, 26 years. And so when I was talking to the parliamentary member uh, over dinner here in the capital about his region, he says, we haven't had a visitor there in 25, 26 years. Not a visitor. And the reason is it's just 
been unsafe because you have this warring with these tribes and nobody's coming in to to bring stability because the government's been worried about the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army, which has been coming in doing the rebel attacks, child soldiers from Congo and from Sudan. And so the government's focus is all over here. And this place where you can only get to it six months out of the year because this four by four road is washed out half the year is left alone. And so it's just a waste. The government programs with AIDS haven't really gotten here. So the AIDS rate is off the chart. The, the warring back and forth, nobody's there to stop it. And so when we were there, Beth and I were with another team from Sisters Church. And you're going you're gonna to see on a video in just a second, Godwin. And you're going to see Pastor David, whose church we're going to be partnering with down here. We're sitting there looking over hundreds of these mud huts. And these mud huts are sometimes only six feet in diameter. Made out of mud walls and then like a thatch roof. And there's still warring going on and cattle rustling. So they're bringing in their cow into the mud hut at night to sleep with them. Because it's their only source of, it's the only value that they have. And it's crazy. And so we're sitting here looking over hundreds of these huts. And they say every single one of these has an orphan in it. Every single one, whether the parents have died from AIDS, whether they've died from the raids and and the warring going on with kind of this rebel tribe, um, every single one has an orphan. Most of them have multiple orphans. Some of them are just a house of orphans. And it was just the craziest thing. And so I remember when I was in college, I used to go to this nursing home because I wanted to know why in James it says true religion is about orphans and widows. And so I was like, where are widows? I don't know. I'll drive to the nursing home. And I was like, my reason for why that was so spiritual is because I was like, I'm missing lunch with all my friends where the cute girls are. So this is why it's spiritual going to a nursing home because you're sacrificing, you know. And I finally realized the reason it was spiritual to give to orphans and widows is you're giving to someone who can't pay you back. They got nothing. You don't get anything out of it other than the joy of giving. And so when I was in Buqua, I I feel like the only thing the Lord told me, I was like looking so hard and I'm like, you know, I'm looking for this coolest thing ever, like reason to go back. And I feel like God purposely didn't let me get super excited about any cool thing because all he said to me was, you were willing to go 20 miles or you willing to go 20,000 miles to where the real widows are at? And I kind of was blown away. I was like, whoa, okay, I guess maybe I am willing to go 20,000 miles. Or we, I don't want to be going on these trips. I'm going December and then in February here just to help get this relationship going. Um, but it's like, I want Antioch to know what it's like to go 20,000 miles to help out orphans and widows. I want us to know the joy of giving when there's nothing that they can give back except appreciation. And so we've learned a lot from uh, the Brosies and others just about what makes a, a meaningful relationship long term. We're partnering with a church. You know, the world has its own way of dealing with problems, and it's called the UN. And God has his way, and it's called the church. And the church is amazing because we can show up for two weeks. But after we leave, who's going to visit the sick? And who's going to take care of the orphans? You know, and who's going to preach hope to a, a lost and dying world after we go? It's the church. And so the best thing we can do while we're in Africa, while we're in Uganda, is to build up the church here in Captura, this whole region with Francis and in the IDP camps, and then with our partner church that's going to be in Bukwa here. The best thing we can do is build them up 
so that they can be the church. And, and like they were saying during the interview, they're going to be able to teach us what that really looks like. And so I just, we've got a video here I want to show you just from our trip in December. And it'll give you a little bit more of the, the background on Buqua. And then we'll kind of wrap up after that. 